I'm guessing many of you seen an episode or clip of the show Undercover Boss. And just in case you haven't seen it, uh, the name of the show sums it up pretty well. Uh, basically, in every episode, the boss of the business, the, you know, the owner or the CEO, leaves behind the comforts of their posh corner office, and they go undercover, right? putting on some clever or really kind of corny costume to mask their true identity so that they can really see what's going on in the front lines of their business. And of course, uh, the best part of Undercover Boss, the clips that they put on YouTube, is always the big reveal at the end. You know, that's usually the moment Larry, the new trainee, with the whole camera crew following him, <laughs> takes his wig and mustache off, and all of a sudden you realize, oh no, it was Mr. Jeff Bezos all along. <laughs> uh, for the record, I don't think he had time for that show. But another reason why the big reveal uh, was the best part of the show was because you got to see the employees' reactions, which were just the best. Because once the employees all of a sudden realized that this was the big boss that they were working alongside the whole time, you see their faces change. Their jaws literally drop. And it's as if in that moment of revelation, they're all cycling through their memories, right? Trying to remember, uh-oh, what did I say to this guy? How did I treat him? Well, um, that makes for some really good reality TV because you see some really sweet moments. You know, you get to see the really good employees, the, the underappreciated ones finally get that, that raise or that promotion or even a scholarship for their kids. Then on the other side, and this is almost just as sweet, you see the really terrible employees finally get some sweet justice. Finally get their comeuppance for all their laziness, for how poorly they've treated you know, their coworkers as well as Larry. They're going to get theirs. They're going to get punished. Well, today we come to a passage in Scripture, Genesis 45, that goes the complete opposite direction of most episodes of Undercover Boss. Yes, we come to the scene of a huge climactic revelation where we see the, the true identity of God's ordained ruler. But this ruler flips the script a little bit. He turns everything upside down. Some truly terrible servants, what they deserve, which would be severe punishment unto death, no, rather, he outrageously and unexpectedly ends up giving these bad servants what they don't deserve. Grace upon grace. Mercy that leads to abundant life. And of course, you know from the reading that I'm, that I'm referring to how Joseph, ruler of Egypt, is revealed to his brothers. But as we've said before, uh, the ultimate reason that we're looking at the life of Joseph is because in so many profound and wonderful ways, he's actually helping us to better understand Jesus. In fact, so as we go and we move forward and you see all these foreshadows or prefigurings of Christ, just keep in mind that this is all in Genesis. This is all in the very first book of the Bible. It's almost as if God does not want us to miss for any reason when he does make the big reveal, right? And this is also why I've titled today's sermon, 
Lord, Savior, Brother. Because every one of these titles applies to Joseph, but they also point us ahead to Jesus, to who he is, the ultimate Lord, ultimate Savior, true ultimate Brother. By the way, Every one of those titles are inseparable from one another, and once you try to kind of separate them, you end up with, I would say, major distortions of the gospel, of Christianity. So let's keep them as they are, which is beautifully united, because each title provides us with something that we all desperately need. Now, remember last week, uh, at the close of chapter 44, we kind of left things on a cliffhanger, Last week, we saw Joseph's brother Judah having something of a big reveal of his own, uh, demonstrating his own dramatic inward transformation, where he sacrificed himself, where he offered himself as a substitute in place of his baby brother Benjamin to lifelong slavery in Egypt. And of course, this is a stunning reversal from many years ago, when Judah was actually the guy that came up with the idea to sell another brother, Joseph, into slavery in order to make a few bucks and to please himself and his wicked brothers. But if you've been with us for the last few chapters, we know that Judah, as well as the other brothers, they've been on quite a journey, haven't they? All right? Not just in literal trips back and forth to Egypt, but as Carrie put it last week, they've been undergoing this long, arduous journey filled with hard blessings, moving from blessed guilt to holy fear, which was preparing them ultimately for perfect mercy. And that brings us to our chapter today, where we finally get to see the culmination of all their transformation, right? Through fear, guilt, and mercy. And this is actually the critical leg of their journey. The transformation is actually just about to begin because this is what it's all culminating to. This is what the, the fear, the guilt, the, the mercy, it's culminating to this one thing for them. Faith. Faith. The brothers are going to encounter the challenge of faith. Now, how does faith usually begin in the Bible? Well, it always does through revelation. It always starts with revelation. And just so you know, this big revelation isn't really about Joseph. No, the great reveal here is that this is God revealing himself for who he truly is. Especially for sinners like the sons of Israel, as well as sinners like you and me. Which brings us to our first point today, which is God's revelation leads to reconciliation. God's revelation leads to reconciliation. Look with me at chapter 45, verse 1, which, which takes place right after Joseph hears Judah's speech. You know, this is where he offers to take the punishment and become a slave in place of Benjamin. Verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Uh, what an emotionally charged scene. I'm sure it was hard for Carrie to leave it hanging last week. Actually, there were uh, two other times that Joseph wept on account of these bittersweet, painful interactions with his brothers. And those times he did so privately. He'd sneak away. He'd do it out of sight. But not this time. The howling was heard all throughout the house. Because after Judah's humble and repentant speech, Joseph is finally ready to reveal his true identity. But here's what's truly strange. This whole time, up until now, for some reason, Joseph's brothers just did not have it in themselves, either in their memory or their wit, to recognize Joseph for who he truly was. They might as well have been blind. So the sense that we all get from this is, it's God who has to ultimately open their eyes to who Joseph is. Now Jesus also spoke about our utter dependence upon God's revelation in this way. This is from John 6.44. Just listen. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's what, exactly what we get to witness here today. Right? God drawing people to himself, which also means he's drawing these people to someone that looks a lot like Jesus. Right? And then you start to realize God is first and foremost revealing himself to be a reconciler. Right? You happen to notice the, the brother's initial response to Joseph's big reveal, though? Verse 3. Brothers kind of act like my kids after they're caught out in some, something wrong, right? They all of a sudden become strangely mute. Verse 3, we're told, for they were dismayed at his presence. And that Hebrew translated here as dismayed is actually quite the charged word. It's often used to describe a state of terror, like paralyzing fear, the kind that often comes upon people in times of war or great distress. This is like a pre-panic attack or something. And this makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because what was probably washing over the brothers in that moment was maybe the realization that they were the worst employees ever to be featured on Undercover Boss. You know, in all seriousness, I'm sure the brothers were dismayed, more than dismayed. I don't think that word quite captures it. They were terrified because they're thinking at this point, oh, we're finished. It's over. God's finally going to give us what we deserve now. This terrible realization dawning upon them that this Egyptian lord before them, who holds the very power of life and death over them, also happens to be the very brother that they so wickedly treated with profound contempt and malice, hostility. That's who they're standing before. Would have been better if, almost if he was just a stranger. But contrary to everything that comes natural to us, 
God's revelation is not for wrath, but for reconciliation. Look again with me at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Keep in mind, you know, before this, Joseph always spoke through interpreters, you know, pretending to not speak their language. So he's speaking them. He's speaking to them in their native tongue at this moment. And we're told the brothers, sensing that something truly welcoming uh, was in Joseph's invitation, they actually do come near. Now, how is it that Joseph is able to show such extraordinary mercy to such unworthy men? Is he just an exceptionally nice guy? Unlike myself? (laughs) Because if I were in Joseph's position, I would have been like, come near to me, please. Aha, gotcha now, fools. Off to build some pyramids with you. And if you somehow survive that, it's off to my sweatshop, my prison camp. You're going to make shoes. In all seriousness, uh, we learn that Joseph is able to show mercy because it was God who had revealed to Joseph his truth, which was that through it all, all the unjust suffering, God was sovereignly working out his great salvation through Joseph. Let's hear from Joseph, from verse 5. This is how he puts it. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. In this speech, Joseph emphatically reminds them four times that God was in control, working out his salvation the whole time. Meaning no matter what, no matter how bad or hopeless things might have seemed for Joseph, God was with him and for him, sovereignly working out his purposes in and through it all. Now, not only was God with And for Joseph, here's another big reveal. God was also with and for his terrible, no good brothers. And you see this in what Joseph reveals about God's purposes, which we're told about at the end of verse 5. For God sent me before you, yes, all of you brothers, to preserve life. Skip down to verse 7. And God sent me before you, brothers, to preserve for you, brothers, a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
This is what God's heart is like and what he's ultimately about, mercifully giving and preserving life, even the life of sinners, because he alone can change hearts and open eyes because he alone is the true source of all life. And this preservation of a remnant, we also see that God is keeping his promises to Abraham, that this promise goes way beyond them, because he promised Abraham that he'd make and keep this faithful remnant for himself, and that nothing, not even the faithlessness of his people, would stop him from fulfilling his promises. So Joseph sums it all up by uh, declaring in verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And this helps us make some sense of what Joseph initially said to his brothers in verse 5, which was, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. Which, by the way, is not Joseph trying to brush the very real sins under the rug or offer some cheap form of grace. You know, it's like, oh, hey, no harm, no foul, and I'll just suck it up. We know this isn't that. Because Joseph never shies away from explicitly confronting and addressing his brother's guilt and sin. You know, for example, verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. (laughs) Not to mention everything in the last few chapters. Go back and read them. So rather, what Joseph is telling his brothers is this. True reason you are now free to put this behind you. To put the guilt behind you is because God has accomplished your redemption. It is finished. He has saved you like only he can. In the same way, Christians, we're not to try to solve the guilt of sin by dismissing it under the rug or taking it lightly. No, we we own it. We, we take it seriously. We recognize that it was our sins that put our Lord Jesus on that cross. And yet, it's the paradox. We rejoice in the good news of Christ and him crucified. Why is that? Because it was at the cross that we see that even while we were yet sinners... That remind you of anybody? God sent a Savior ahead of us to take care of the penalty and free us from the power of sin so that we might be truly set free and reconciled to him and then set aside for his purposes. Uh, just, you know, in the course of worship, uh, you, you, you have these moments where you realize, I am free in Christ. Oh, what what greater blessing is there than that? So all that's left to do now is to come near, to receive the gift of this good revelation and live reconciled to your Lord and your Savior. And you really can come near. Here's why. Because not only has God revealed Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, but God also reveals Joseph as well as Jesus to be your brother, your brother. It's like um, the sons of Israel had forgotten this, that Joseph was their brother. 
He wasn't some uninvolved, distant, stranger savior, right? But I get this letter, oh, he paid all my debt. I'll never meet him. I'll never know him. No, he's not just some inaccessible, far-removed master giving me orders from, you know, some posh corner office on the 70th floor. No, he's very much their brother. The best one at that. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Now, what does the gospel tell us who our Lord and Savior Jesus is for us? Let's not forget this. As our first reading revealed, just listen, uh, Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And as we read on in chapter 45, it turns out that God has reconciled these brothers for something, for something. A new purpose after God's purposes. It's almost like he's shaping their heart after his heart. And this leads us to our second point today, which is reconciliation leads to mission. Reconciliation leads to mission. Because did you notice how in the middle of this beautiful moment of reconciliation, Joseph reveals um, the future that... Um, in the midst of God's salvation working out in the world, there's also this famine, this ongoing famine. They're just two years into a seven-year famine. They got five more years of this to somehow endure and survive. But they are not without hope. How spectacular that is that you can look to a five-year famine and have resilient hope. This is the grace of God. So, now that these brothers have come to know God and his grace, they've been reconciled to Joseph, um, they've come to understand that God has sent this reconciling Savior ahead for the world, Joseph begins to instruct his brothers on what comes next, what they must do. Verse 9, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Ah, God's going to just take care of it all. But we can't miss the urgency of this, of, of Joseph's call here, right? Because as it turns out, the only way anyone in the world was going to make it alive, out alive through this horrific famine was by coming to Joseph, God's appointed Savior. I want your Jesus bells to be ringing here. <laughs> so the brothers must hurry and they go and tell their father and their, and their people that if they are to live, they too must come near to Joseph. Joseph, you know, he repeats this emphatically, the urgency and the priority. Again, in verse 13, he says, You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Joseph had all the reason to be insistent and persistent here because, number one, 
there is real blessing to be enjoyed by coming to Joseph. In fact, once Pharaoh hears about Joseph's reconciliation with his uh, brothers, he tells Joseph to expand the offer to his family in this way, right? He tells them, hey, tell them if they come, your family will enjoy, in verse 18, the fat of the land. USDA prime of the land. Um, And in verse 20, he says, Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Everything you have now, uh, you can consider it like rubbish in comparison to what you're going to have in Joseph. Leave all that junk behind. Come. But Joseph also lovingly warns that to spurn him and his offer also surely means coming to poverty. Verse 11, that phrase, uh, come to poverty, right, could, could also be translated as coming to lose everything, <laughs> all that you have, your life, ultimate impoverishment. By the way, this was true even for Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at the time, who could not have survived seven years of famine on his own wisdom or wit. He couldn't have thrown any money at it to solve this. What he had to do was entrust himself and his whole house to Joseph, God's appointed Savior. Now then, I want us to imagine this uh, following absurd scenario, okay? Imagine that after the brothers hear Joseph's call to go and share this news, this invitation, the brothers respond to Joseph like this. Imagine them saying this to him. Thank you, brother, for your amazing saving grace and forgiveness. We can't thank you enough for all the countless precious blessings you've already bestowed upon us. Way beyond our imagination. We are not worthy. But what's the big hurry? Don't you think it'd be best if we just stay put in your house for a bit longer? Man, you got some nice stuff here. Let's have a few more feasts. There's more than enough for all of us here, right? And really, there's a famine out there. Why should we inconvenience ourselves to go and tell others? The folks back home, they're pretty resourceful, actually. They'll be fine. Some of them we really don't like or miss all that much anyway. We'd rather just hang out with you, Joseph, here. Okay, now thankfully this is not how the brothers responded because they do hurry and they do go because as recipients of amazing grace, they're compelled to share this grace. But I leave this absurd response here as a warning to myself and to all of us here who have tasted an even greater grace experienced an even greater reconciliation to our Lord, to our Savior, to our brother, Jesus Christ. But sometimes we have a way of losing the plot, losing the plot, falling in love with the things of this world, neglecting God's word, also known as his revelation, therefore, Getting, getting weak and wobbly about his reconciliation. 
And then, you know what goes out the window? His mission. Right? We don't go. We just stay put. We don't go and share his invitation to life eternal. I, I'm, I'm so guilty of this, you know. But I got to ask myself and I got to ask us all here, what greater calling in life could anyone ever ask or hope for than to go and share this invitation, this good news of our Lord, Savior, brother, this invitation to come near especially as we live in a world that is so obviously in a state of famine. This is a world that needs living bread, my friends. Now, I'm not denying the sad and difficult reality that many will reject Jesus Christ and his invitation. But that can never serve as an excuse for not going or not obeying. Because God has sent a Savior ahead of us to reconcile sinners and to preserve life. And this leads us to our third and final point today, which is simply this. New life requires faith. New life requires faith. So after Joseph's amazing revelation leads to this reconciliation with his brothers, the brothers accept Joseph's mission and they go. And Joseph, again, he graciously gives to them everything that they need and then some for, for their journey. And he also provides for uh, Jacob's potential journey back. It's beautiful. It's just, I think <laughs> this is another way that he points us to, to Jesus, right? Let's read from verse 21. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. There's a beautiful irony here because in chapter 43, the brothers, you know, they're, they're like, oh, Joseph, this Egyptian ruler has found us out and he's going to take our donkeys. He's going to impound my car. <laughs> you know? And gosh, look at this. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain. Just abundant, gracious provision. And yet, Joseph's final parting word or instruction to his brothers here is, and it's just perfect. I think it's so apt. Verse 24, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Do not <laughs> Why this particular command, do you think? Uh, because I think if they're anything like us, as they hit the road, they might be prone to weaken in their faith forgetting some important, vital truths along the way concerning the perfect grace and salvation that they've already received. And let's face it, as the brothers leave Egypt, they're going to be tempted to bicker and to quarrel about many things from their past, right? Uh, I can imagine them arguing like this. You were way worse to Joseph than I was. Or 
or they start boasting. I was way better to Joseph than you were. You're more to blame. I'm better than you. Um, we don't do that. No. <laughs> and then there are all these many other absurd attempts to justify themselves or establish their worth or self-righteousness, totally forgetting that it was only by the mercies of God that they're on this journey, that they're still alive, that they have everything that they need. And on the other side, they also might continue to wrestle with doubt about God's ongoing goodness and faithfulness to them. He was good to me in the past, but how can I be sure that he's going to take care of me tomorrow? Occasionally wondering, am I really reconciled? Am I really forgiven? Is God still out there to get us? Is Joseph just luring us into the most dire, clever death trap of all? Because if so, I better take matters into my own hands. I have to look out for myself. Because no one else will. You think that kind of outlook, that kind of unbelief might lead to some quarreling along the way? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And do you think it might kind of distort or hinder their mission a little bit? Yes. And yet, this uh, this is so... You and I, isn't it? It's what we're like as sinners when we forget the reconciling heart of God in Christ Jesus. We become forgetful about the, fe- the past and we become fearful about the future and then we end up all kinds of lost in the present. Living as if we don't have a Lord and Savior and brother who is Jesus the Christ. Take heart, believers. Uh, Scriptures have actually uh, said a lot about this. They seem to understand our particular struggle, uh, which is why there are so many uh, exhortations in the New Testament that are in the vein of do not quarrel along the way. One of my favorites comes from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'll just read it here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So by his grace, on account of his humility toward us, his patience with us, his love, Right? We're to walk in this calling, this mission, by faith. We're not to fight causing disunity, but instead we are to fight for unity, which is made possible ultimately by his empowering spirit. Now, thankfully, the brothers do make it successfully back to Canaan, and they're finally able to deliver the good news to their father Jacob. But Jacob, much like his son's, Earlier in the chapter, he's kind of having a hard time to believe. He's having a hard time believing this invitation, this good news. Verse 26, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Wow. 
Jacob responds with numb unbelief to this good news. But the brothers don't give up because they know it's true. They love their dad, so they're going to lovingly persist. Verse 27, but when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. We're told here that the brothers relied on two things, two things to exhort their, their, their father. First and foremost, which was Joseph's words, and then, second, Joseph's gifts. Just as, uh, I, I would say this is really an amazing picture of how we Christians also bear witness, right? Jesus sends us, and what does he send us out with? Gives us his word. And then he gives us gifts to testify to the truth of his word. Just as Joseph's brothers, these gifts were both material and spiritual um, blessings that are for our provision, for our enjoyment, but not just for us, right? They're also to serve as blessings and provisions for others. In fact, a, a large part of this was set aside. A big part of this was set aside for, for Jacob and the family. So, I, I want to invite us away from the misery of trying to use these gifts only for ourselves. Because <laughs> that is to miss out on the joy of applying his word along with the many resources and gifts that he's given to us um, and the joy of building up his church. This is going to be the, the most joyful, glorious thing to ever come into existence at the end of all ages and time. So, I love what happens after Jacob comes to believe in Joseph's words. He does eventually believe. We're told in verse 27, after hearing the word and, and seeing the testimony of all the, the wagons and you know gifts, um, we're told in verse 27, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Or put another way, it's like he came back to life. Now believing was not a small thing for Jacob, right? Because when he believed, it meant leaving behind everything he knew in Canaan, the land, much of his property, and entrusting himself and his family instead to this good news, this invitation from Joseph. And also accepting this invitation would put Joseph on quite a journey, right? Going from Canaan to Egypt, especially at that age, with such a large group, hey, there's a lot to get nervous about. Bandits, storms, sickness. You're going to take the risk and accept this invitation? But we know that Jacob, on account of believing, he's really not going to miss out on anything, is he? In fact, notice how basically the, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, is laying all his treasures at Joseph's feet for the benefit of his family. 
Jacob, in fact, has nothing to lose and everything to gain, including life. So this leaves us with our own challenge, doesn't it? Today you've heard the word of the Lord, our Savior, our brother Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him here today, or if you've been running from him and trying to survive an unsurvivable famine on your own, I'd like for you to hear this good news, which is, yes, our Lord Jesus is very much alive. He is alive. And he has gone before you to preserve your life. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is brother. And you're surrounded here actually by his brothers and sisters whom he has revived. <laughs> right? They're all witnesses. I can testify to you about the truthfulness of his word where evidences of his transforming power. All that we have is thanks to him. And from him, we have everything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And we are nothing. And here's his invitation to you. It comes from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So hurry, do not tarry. Come near to Jesus, please, and live. Amen.